The Forum at 8 with Polani Gwala. It is eight minutes after eight. A very good morning to you and a warm welcome to the Forum at 8 here on SAFM, South Africa's news and information lead. Um, well then, as we have been saying uh, since this morning. Yesterday, Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, the Executive Director of Makarere Institute of Social Research, um, was uh, delivering the MISTRA annual lecture and he raised very pertinent, very important uh, issues surrounding how we deal with uh, post-conflict political processes. Uh, One of the things that he says, of course, is that we have to find an alternative way of dealing with these matters. Um, In a lecture entitled Beyond Nuremberg, the Historical Significance of the Post-Apartheid Transition in South Africa, Professor Mamdan says, whether in the Balkans or in Rwanda or Congo, international criminal trials are the preferred response to extreme violence. That precedent is that violence must be criminalized without exception. Its perpetrators are identified and tried in a court of law. Uh, He then proposes an alternative way of thinking of mass violence as political rather than criminal. Professor Mahmoud Mamdani joins us on the line this morning. A very good morning to you, Professor. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Well, congratulations. Congratulations again on on the lecture last night. It was fabulous. Thank you. Thank you. Well, Professor, maybe to make a point, what I'll try and do at the beginning is to cite two current examples of what is happening across the continent. And you will tell me whether that's exactly what you're talking about or not. Firstly, yesterday, lawyers for Kenya's president-elect Uhuru Kenyatta uh, again were shuffling up and down, battling to get the International Criminal Court to drop charges against him. Uh, that's one part of the story. But also yesterday, uh, there was a story about General Bosco Ndanganda, uh, who has been wanted by the International National Criminal Court since 2006 about the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo. In fact, uh, he's been described as a thug, a killer, and uh, has the nickname of the Terminator. Wherever he has gone in the Democratic Republic of uh, the DRC, he's left behind a trail of destruction. Um, U.S. State Department spokesperson Victoria Nolan spoke of the surprise handover because Bosco Ndanganda handed himself over yesterday, and this is what the U.S. State Department spokesperson had to say. I can confirm that this morning Bosco N. Taganda, an ICC indictee and leader of one of the M23 factions, walked into U.S. Embassy Kigali. He specifically asked to be transferred to the ICC in The Hague. Uh, We're currently consulting with a number of governments, including the Rwandan government, uh, in order to facilitate his request. And, and that, of course, was the spokesperson for the U.S. State Department. Professor, then come in here, because as far as I understand, this is what you're talking about. You're saying that as opposed to us following the ICC route, which has its roots in the Nuremberg trials, let's find an alternative. Is that what you're saying? Well, what I'm saying is this. Uh, if our main objective is to stop the violence, we will not achieve it by targeting individuals who are in leadership positions uh, in different cycles of violence. If we want to stop the violence, we have to realize that these individuals have a following. Individuals as awful and terrible as Bosco and Tanganda mm-hmm. still have a large following. You remove them You've done a band-aid operation. You still have to deal with issues which are the 
main reason why this following has been mobilized. It won't end the cycle of violence. What about the concept of crime and punishment? That those who have committed the crimes must then be punished? That's absolutely correct. But that is something that has to do with uh, crime, criminal violence. I'm talking of political violence. Let's turn the question around. You look at cases of political violence around this continent Mm -hmm. or look at cases of political violence around the world and show me one example of where the violence has been ended by targeting individuals who are in leadership positions, by taking them to court. I I can't think of any. I can't think of any, but shouldn't leaders who are then leading, you know, uh, uh, those violent incidents, shouldn't they take responsibility? Isn't it an issue of saying, well, if you lead Sudan in the process of certain crimes being committed, human rights violations and so on, then as a leader you must take responsibility. Well, take the example of Sudan, which is very similar to the example of Kenya. Mm -hmm. The violence in Sudan was in Darfur. The violence in Kenya was in Rift Valley. In both cases, you had the criminal gangs being used uh, by uh, leaders uh, whose major ambition was political power. Um, and in both cases, uh, these leaders and these criminal gangs did not act alone, but they were actually able to mobilize large numbers of people. Large numbers of people got involved in the violence not because of pursuit of power, but they got involved in violence because they had real issues on the ground. The issue on the ground in both cases had to do with land. In Sudan, you had a drought going over 40 years. According to the UN Environmental Program, the Sahara had expanded southwards about 100 miles over 40 years, driving nomads of the north down south. As the nomads came down south, they were saying, we are Sudanese, we have a right to survive. And we can we have a right to land anywhere in Sudan. Those the peasants who lived around the mountain Jabal Mara were saying, "No, you don't have a right, because this is our land. This is our tribal land." You have two different notions of land. Same in Rift Valley in Kenya. In the Rift Valley, the uh, uh, one 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 group of people, the Kalenjin, were saying, "This is our land because this has been our tribal land since colonial times." And another group, the Kikuyu, who had come down the mountains, were saying, this is our land because we have a market-based title to this land. Mm-hmm. Now, how are you going to deal with this situation? If you think that you can deal with this situation by targeting individual leaders, you are simply going to feed the cycle of violence. That is indeed what happened in Kenya. They targeted individual leaders on both sides, Uhuru Kenyatta on the Kikuyu side, and William Ruto on the Kalenjin side, and then came the election. And in fact, what you did was you so polarized the politics of Kenya, you so completely ethnicized it, and you brought together these two people who had led 
opposing factions in the 2007 election and the violence that followed, they came together in the election, and lo and behold, they won the election. Hmm. Now, what are you going to do? So ultimately, it's that, it's that idea that no one is completely innocent, neither is there anyone who is completely guilty. Well, the idea is this, look. In a court of law, the judge determines which of the two parties is innocent and which one is guilty. The court of law is a winner-take-all platform. In a civil war situation, especially where you have cycles of violence, the two sides, more often than not, trade sides. Today's victim may have been yesterday's perpetrator, and today's perpetrator, yesterday's victim. So that's the question. Is anybody wholly innocent? Is anybody wholly evil? The, the, the language of enemy is ill-suited to, to, to situations where you have a political conflict. And in my talk yesterday, I was really saying that let's look at actually, rather than looking at, 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 at models which have been constructed by lawyers, let's look at what has happened on the ground and let's identify situations and cases where we have managed to solve uh, uh, intractable, otherwise intractable political situations, and let's try and draw some lessons from it. And, and one of those examples, uh, according to your talk, is Codessa. Yes, I think Codessa is a brilliant example of this, uh, because, uh, you know, for several reasons. Uh, uh, one is that, you see, in a Nuremberg-type situation, a, 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 a court is only possible where one side is won and the other side has been defeated. If, if, if there is not a victory, then it requires an external intervention and, and therefore a victory engineered by this external intervention. Kodesa gave us a real-life situation where, in fact, you had a stalemate. You had a stalemate with the apartheid state realized it couldn't win and, and the liberation movements realized that there would be no revolution, um, and they were stuck with one another. And, 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 and to find a way out of this dilemma, uh, they could only do it by doing it together. If you criminalize either side, threaten to take them to court, uh, then, of course, that side would have no motivation whatsoever to, 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 to join in, in political discussions. You actually had to have a change of mindset you had to you, you you had to think of the other side not as an enemy, because an enemy is somebody you wipe out. An enemy is somebody you eliminate. You had to think of them as adversary rather than enemy. With an adversary you can talk. Hmm. With an adversary you can explore ways out of the situation. That's a that's a big change of mindset. And what I was saying is that South Africa was not an exception. Uh, before, before South Africa, you had the Ugandan case when the NRA, the National Resistance Army, came to power in 1986. And, and, and they prevailed militarily in a very small part of the country, the Luero Triangle. But when they came to Kampala, the capital city, they realized that they didn't have political uh, mobilization all over the country and that they were, in fact, one among several groups. And, 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 and they said they would create a broad-based government, meaning that every group... Every group with, with, with 
popular following of any sort would have representation in that government. They didn't have to give up their objectives. The only thing they had to give up was recourse to violence. Mm. And they created this broad-based government. Odessa was the next big example on the continent. Then followed Mozambique. Remember Mozambique with, 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 with Renamo, which was a terrorist movement. Right? Renamo was, was, was openly terrorist, used terror as a propaganda uh, uh, tactic. Uh, and, and, and very similar to the LRA in Uganda. Right? And, and here you have a concrete demonstration of two different ways being followed. Mm. With Renamo, the, the way followed was the political way. The leadership of Renamo sits in parliament today, but the violence has ended. You can say that most of those leaders, you know, in a court of law, they would have been convicted. You could say that the killers of Steve Biko, who were known killers, right, would have been hanged yeah. in any other situation. But that was the trade-off, right? The trade-off was the dead are dead, but the living must must have a second chance. Very important. The living must have a second chance. And you're gonna, and I suspect you're going to get a lot of people calling in, and we'll open the lines in a minute, Prof, will say, well, Kodessa actually um, may have failed certain parts of the community, who will say, and you point out in your speech, for instance, when you talk about uh, the, the sunset clause and, and uh, what it may have done in terms of the uh, property rights and who benefited out of that. And people will say, where you don't have uh, violence as we know it, where you know, blood flows down the whatever. Uh, but you've got violence because certain people continue to be dispossessed in, in many ways. Look, I'm in agreement with it. Kolesa uh, uh, was not and could not be just the end of the story. It, 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 was, it, was, it was a first step, a starting point in the journey out of apartheid. What Kolesa did was it dismantled juridical and political apartheid. The task that remained was the task of dismantling the social effects of apartheid, what is, what is often called social apartheid in this country, the immense disparity, economic disparity, between the victims and the beneficiaries of, of, of apartheid. And, 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 and my critique is not that that could have been achieved then, because to expect that would have been to say, that there should have been a revolution then. But Kodesa took place precisely because there couldn't be a revolution, then you couldn't uh, uh, say that there should have been a revolution because that's wishful thinking. Uh, but, but the problem with Kodesa was um, uh, uh, that it put a constitutional lid on the struggle for social justice. Kodesa uh, 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 gave constitutional sanction to the property that, that had been... to, to, to to really theft, which had been translated into property under under the apartheid eras, that was that was protected as as as, as a basic right uh, um, under under the new constitution, uh, whereas the property of those whose land had been taken uh, was not protected as, as a basic right, but simply uh, uh, given a mention in 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 law. Um, and and my own view is that actually while we recognise. Uh, that these social wrongs, economic wrongs, could not have been corrected right then, but the journey could have begun. 
And, and that journey should have begun with the TRC. And that's interesting because uh, when you talk about the TRC, you start off by saying the great myth of the South African transition is that it was driven by the TRC. But actually you say the TRC was designed as a surrogate Nuremberg where the opponents of apartheid set in judgment over its operatives. Uh, you're critical of the TRC and its role. Well, I'm critical of the TRC, first of all, because the TRC was cast in the old mindset of Nuremberg. The TRC was faced with this incredible crime, apartheid, a crime against humanity. The TRC reduced it to the violence of a few individuals. You know, the real crime of apartheid, it was not torture and murder carried out by a few state operatives who exceeded, who went beyond the law and exceeded political orders. The real crime of apartheid, were the political orders, were the very law of apartheid, was the normal violence of apartheid, not the extraordinary violence of apartheid, the normal violence of apartheid, which classified the vast majority of people in this country under, 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 under a single sort of racial heading and, and made them subject to limitations, carrying passports, subject to forced removal. Millions were affected by this. The, the, the torture, what the TRC called the violation of bodily integrity, affected not millions, just thousands. That's it. Now, if you wanted to address apartheid, then you had to address not individual perpetrators. You had to address the state as the major perpetrator. And, 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 and you had to... You had to introduce into public discussion the question of how do you, do you then re, provide redress for the victims of that state, which were in the millions. The TRC completely uh, shut its eyes to that question and, 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 and just looked at cases which could have been brought to court under apartheid itself. Uh, I think of the TRC as a court of law it was within the framework of apartheid law. Mm. Right, we'll open the lines here, Prof, on 0891-104-208, 0891-104-208. Let's find out what people think. Uh, uh, there's Hassan Logan already on the line. Hassan, good morning to you. Uh, good morning. Hi. Um, you know, uh, Prof, uh, you, you tend to suggest that uh, the issues of right and wrong or those who are guilty is not just uh, a permanent one. But, uh, and you also seem to be very critical of international law, which tends to, to look at the strategic interests before deciding on what's a violation. I mean, the case of Bahrain being ignored as a, 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 a trouble spot and the focus on Syria, uh, the state of Israel uh, almost regarded as a, a deserving victim. The question I have with that, I can understand that, but the question is that when we try to devolve things to the local level, which is preferred, it does appear that we, we, we don't build enough strong local institutions to deal with these issues, and then impunity sets in anyhow. Hassan Logan, thank you. Prof? Yeah, um, look, there are two issues here. One is the question of inconsistency that you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, that because you have an international law, but you don't have an international polity, and therefore you have these legal institutions like the ICC, uh, which are not politically accountable to an international body. The maximum accountability they have is to the Security Council of the UN, which is really not a democratic body, but is a body which is moved by five permanent members. 
uh, with the strongest of the five taking the lead. Therefore, you have inconsistencies. Um, so, so everybody knows that uh, 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 the major purveyors of violence uh, 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 in, in this world is, 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 is the U.S., whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan. And this, of course, has never been part of what the ICC has been concerned about. But even if you forget the U.S., uh, if, you took it, if, you, if you look at local cases within Africa, for example, uh, uh, they have responded very differently. Uh, 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 not based on, 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 on what actually happened on the ground, but based on the relationship of the major powers to those who have waged this violence. Um, so that's one issue of yeah. consistency. What I'm saying is that there's a second issue. The second issue is that even if you had courts of law which were accountable to a democratic polity, even then you would have consequences which are unintended, which would not, which would feed the violence rather than stop the violence because of two reasons. One, the court of law is a winner-take-all proposition. And where you have violence which has been reproduced over a period of time, where you have violence like the violence of civil war, you don't have one party which is totally guilty and another party which is totally innocent. You have to have a discussion between the two and a, 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 a process in which both are involved. The court of law will disenfranchise the guilty party politically. We don't want that. Hmm. We want the guilty party to, or the party, the allegedly guilty party, to be involved in the political process because without it, the stalemate will, will continue. That's the problem. You, you, can, you can put uh, General Tanganda in jail uh, 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 but the M21 will continue. The conflict in Congo will continue because you haven't addressed the issue that's, that's led to this conflict over decades and decades. Sure, Prof. And you suggest, of course, in your lecture that that leads to the current uh, uh, way we view human rights, the current uh, paradigm in which we view human rights. And I'm going to ask you just to hold that, uh, hold your thoughts on that. I'm going to take all the updates, come back and talk about that current paradigm then in as far as human rights are concerned. Um, and also just the juxtaposition that you make between human rights and human wrongs. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. For now, though, let's uh, get the updates. We'll start with the news from Babakshini Chetty. The Forum at 8 with Polani Guala. It is now 25 minutes before 9, and my guest on the line, my guest on the line Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, he presented the 2013 Mistra Annual Lecture last night here in Johannesburg, themed Beyond Nuremberg, the historical significance of the post-apartheid transition in South Africa. And of course, among other things, he says, in the Balkans or in Rwanda or Congo, international criminal trials are the preferred response to extreme violence. He's proposing an alternative way of dealing with these matters. He's on the line. Again, Prof, thanks indeed for your time this morning. We're going to Go to the lines on 0891-104-208 in a minute. 0891-104-208. But let me read you this email, Prof, uh, perhaps which kicks off this this uh, session of our discussion. It comes from Faisal in Mayfair. He says, your guest is conflating the ICC criminal court with the political process to achieve peace. The ICC is not a mechanism such as the TRC to achieve peace and reconciliation. The ICC is purely a criminal court. German war criminals were prosecuted, and the process of achieving peace after the Second World War still continued outside the criminal process, uh, regards Faisal and Mayfair. What do you make of those, of those points, the Prof? 
uh, here's what I make of it. Um, to set up a court at Nuremberg uh, required that the military uh, campaign, the war, um, come to a successful end for one side, the victorious side, and defeat for the other side. Without that, you cannot have a court. Uh, the winners try the losers. Mm. It's exactly what happened at Nuremberg. Um, uh, the British planes, which bombed uh, German cities, Dresden, uh, the estimates are upwards of 300,000 dead, uh, seven, 800,000 seriously injured, uh, directly ordered by Churchill. Um, he wasn't taken to court. Uh, the Americans who uh, put atom bombs uh, in, 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 in Japan when everybody knew the war was nearing an end, firebombed Tokyo, uh, nobody was taken to court. Um, only perpetrators on one side were taken to court. So that's one thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing <clears throat> was that Nuremberg was informed by a particular logic, and that logic was uh, that Winners and losers will not live in one country. Uh, winners, uh, perpetrators, and victims uh, will, will be separated forever politically. They redrew the boundaries of Europe. They moved millions of people across these boundaries. They carried out the most extensive ethnic cleansing in the history of Europe. They carried out an enormous crime, and they called it justice. The end point of that enormous crime, although it happened after Nuremberg, was the creation of the State of Israel, the create a state for victims. Um, the problem is that in Africa, we cannot envisage such a solution. You couldn't separate blacks and whites in South Africa into two separate states, so the victims may have a state of their own and the perpetrators may be separated into another state. There were groups of people in this country who did think so, who thought that there should have been a, a, a separate state, a, a boost that, um, didn't work. didn't work because it didn't have public political support either. You, Hutu and Tutsi in Rwanda have to live together. You can't have a Hutu land separate from a Tutsi land. Um, so, so, so the question we are confronted with is not simply punishment, uh, but Life after punishment, you know, you can have you can have a terrible thing happen in a marriage, and 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 and, and if you decide to go separate ways, you look at that thing differently. But if you decide to stay in the marriage, then you will treat that terrible thing in a different way. You will subordinate it to the interests of the marriage of life to come. That's what I'm saying. Mm. I'm saying we have no choice. We, we, we have to live together. The problem is, you see, our societies were put together by a colonial experience, and this is true throughout this continent, by a colonial experience where the, the principal objective was to divide societies. The principal objective was to fragment societies. The nation-building project did not begin with colonialism. It began at the end of colonialism. Everywhere we have this violence small in some places, large in other places, 
But everywhere we have violence between those who think they own the state and have, have, have a right to exclusive occupation of, of, of the country and, and, and those who feel they are excluded. Okay. We need a new compact of citizenship. New compact of citizenship, and I, just, and I mentioned just before the news headlines. By the way, uh, you, 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 the, the way you refer to the human rights paradigm now as perhaps a result of the Nuremberg type approach uh, that that takes everybody to court and that says there are individual criminal responsibilities. Well, my problem is that they have so moralized this question; they, they, they've completely depoliticized it. And indeed, you have to depoliticize it. You have to remove the politics from it if you're going to take it to a court of law. And, 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 and there's a problem with it. Because then, then you, 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 will, you will only focus on the individual as a criminal. You will not be able to figure out why this criminal was followed by these hundreds of thousands of people. That, that connection will be lost. So if you read... Sorry to interrupt you, because is it important to justify criminality? I'm not saying we justify criminality, okay? Mm -hmm. I'm saying um, you can, you you know, at the end of wars, um, you have amnesties declared. Amnesty is not declared because everybody says there was no crime. There were no criminals. There was nothing wrong that was done. Amnesty is declared because people say that we want to move beyond this situation. We don't deny what has happened. Mm. We don't forget what has happened, right? Uh, We don't even necessarily forgive what has happened. We we, we draw appropriate lessons from it. And and I'm saying that the real thing that needs to happen is not the identification and punishment of individuals, but the reform, political reform reform social reform, the reform that will address the grievances of millions of people who got involved in this. Hmm. Let's take some calls, Prof. Let's go to Advocate Mandula here in Johannesburg. Good morning, Advocate Mandula. Uh, good morning, Tolan, and to Prof. Uh, Mamdan. Uh, Tolan, I think this is a very critical topic, but when you look at the African human rights system, I wanted to uh, solicit his views on the application of the African uh, Court of Justice, which is based in Arusha, where I will, I will assume that is one of the alternative paradigms, to say how do we deal with African perpetrators of these human rights violations. And secondly, Tolani, to look at how do we develop again human rights investigators, because you will remember, as you were talking about the Kenyan ICC indictment, that one day when I was in Kenya, I learned that uh, Louis Mori Akompono, what he was doing, it was a desktop research. And again, you find that what they do, Tolani, is that it was a referral from United Nations Security Council to, 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 to probe such violations. So as Prof was saying, the United Nations Security Council need to be reformed as well. So when we enter this debate, I agree with him and to say that one of the paradigms is how do we inculcate the African human rights system which has not been taken into cost, Tolani. And like I said to you, the issue of African Court of Justice, which is based in Arusha, Tolani, less people are not aware of that court, rather than we look at the Hague, Tolani, as our, our alternative. Even if we know, Tolani, that people like Thomas Lubanga and uh, Bemba have been prosecuted there and Charles Taylor, but that did not 
assist ordinary people in those countries. All right, Abdul Mandula in Johannesburg. Thank you. Let me just quickly, before I get the professor's response, let me take Mema here in Johannesburg. Mema, good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on Golani. The point that I wanted to make was that what the professor is proposing is actually what we've been doing in Africa. I mean, if you look at the conflict in the 90s, most of them were... Mema, sorry, Mema, can I ask you just to switch off your radio for me because we're getting a feedback. Oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please. So what I was saying is that if you look at most of the conflict in the 90s, where they were resolved is by having these definitive government and these transition situations where, you know, uh, trying to accommodate all the the various factions led to terrible line, Mema. Just turn around because I think you have a very important point you're making. Are you still there, Mema? Gee, he has a, I think he has an interesting point that he's making. Um, maybe, Prof, just these two, two callers. His point was that this is not the first time this is happening in Africa. What is not the first time? You're, what you're proposing, that we find an alternative to the Nuremberg-style approach. You know, he's completely right. What I am saying is that we have shut our eyes to our own experience. And, and we need to open our eyes and ask ourselves, what has worked on this continent? It's part of a larger problem. We tend to look for solutions like prescriptions from outside the continent. We tend to think that knowledge and wisdom comes from somewhere else, and in the process, we just shut our eyes to our own experience. We fail to, 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 to draw conclusions from it. He's absolutely right. And that's what I was saying, that this is what happened in Uganda after 86. This is what happened in South Africa. This is what happened in, uh, in, 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 in Mozambique. So instead of exceptionalizing each of these events, why don't we say, what was this? What was common between these? And why don't we take that as the way forward? Let me answer the, fir- uh, uh, Please, the first the question yeah. uh, from, from our lawyer friend, the advocate. Mm. Uh, uh, You know, he's raising the question of accountability, and and it's a very interesting question because, you know, when you you look at accountability, you have two kinds of accountability. You have the accountability of the perpetrator, and then you have the accountability of the enforcer of the law. And I would say to you that the more important accountability of the two is the accountability of the enforcer of the law. People who live in poor communities know that it's far more important that the police be accountable than the criminals being accountable. Because if the police is not accountable, then all you have is a regime of warlords. And and and, and the problem is with, with this legal paradigm, this, this judicial process that we're being given, is that it's without political accountability. It's, it's being used for political purposes selectively, internationally, and within the continent, we haven't yet evolved a democratic system of accountability, which is Africa-wide. Um, you know, we're putting the cart before the horse. You can't devise a, 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 a legal systems without devising a democratic political system. No court in South Africa would have had credibility without dismantling apartheid as a political system. Uh, so, so I am saying, I'm not saying forget about criminal accountability, but I'm saying understand 
understand that, that you, have, you have to locate it within a larger question. Okay. And that larger question is the political question. All right. I, I have a couple of people who have been sending, who have been tweeting me this morning, Prof, and I'm going to read those for you in a minute. But let me take Mvusi to Mvusi. Good morning. and your guest. Hi, welcome. Another great show. Thank you. Look, I, I, I want to take one of the aspects that the, the prof is raising. The issue of, of, of social aspect of your transition post-liberation. I think one, one of the things maybe you can expound on is how do we engage in a process that will build the relationship between the state and the populace? Because, again, if you look at the recent violent issues involving the courts and, 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 and the communities, Golani, I think we need to find one another in that. And, and we should not outsource it to government. It should be something that is driven by the people. And the last part is, how do we build this relationship between the business or the market, the state, and the people that are serviced by both institutions? Because at the end of the day, it, it, it is not working for us to adopt foreign thinking or policies to, to the African context, because those things don't work. I mean, look at the gap between the Constitutional Court and the ordinary people in rural areas. It's far. No, Mbusi, thank you, Mbusi Ekluwa. Thank you very much, Prof. Before you respond to that question, here's uh, uh, Professor Mbusi Gumede, who, who has tweeted me this morning. He says, "Mahmoud Mamdani's take on South Africa's democratic transition process is debatable. Perhaps Kodesa was more flawed than the TRC." Uh, but there's also another tweet from the same professor, Professor Gumede, who says, "Although important, Kodesa is an is an example further entrenched an unfortunate culture of compromise." That's the professor, Professor Vuzikumate. Uh, but Zepo M as well says, can your guest please validate his view that a revolution was not possible in South Africa? I do not agree. Jimin Pengwa, also tweeting me this morning, says, is the professor advocating reconciliation without justice? Prof? Okay. Um, let me start with these last questions. Sure. Um, unfortunately, uh, Kodesa has been presented um, in the language of compromise and pragmatism. Uh, One thing about compromises and pragmatism uh, is that they are opportunistic. Uh, There's nothing to take home from there. Uh, There's nothing that you can apply to another situation. There's nothing translatable, transportable. And what I'm saying is that let's take a second look at Kodesa. Um, Kodesa was not simply a compromise, uh, but Kodesa also showed a different way out. It showed a non-military way out. It showed a, a, a way out where winner would not have to take all. So that's what I'm saying. It showed us a political way out. Um, uh, 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 rather than a military or, 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 or a juridical way out. I'm also saying the second thing, um, <clears throat> which is that justice, uh, uh, we, we need to think of justice not simply as criminal justice, because, because that's the reconciliation without justice uh, idea, meaning we had reconciliation, but we didn't have criminal justice. Okay. Justice comes in different forms. Kodesa gave us political justice. Okay, it gave us political justice, it dismantled political and legal apartheid. Kodesa did not give us social justice. 
what South African society is crying out for today, the vast majority, the victims of apartheid and the victims of whatever has happened since apartheid, what this group is crying out for is social justice. All I'm saying is that social justice could not have been delivered at Odessa because that social justice would have to be the result of a balance of forces that would have isolated the, 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 not the perpetrators, but the beneficiaries of apartheid. It would have, would have actually, see the problem was this. And let me go back to the TRC because this is where the problem lay, not with the with 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 Codesa. The, the TRC had the opportunity to address the white population in South Africa and to tell them that yes, look, you were not perpetrators. The most of you, 99.9 percent of you, were not perpetrators, but all of you were beneficiaries. Whether you were opposed to apartheid, whether you were for apartheid, whether you just by, you all benefited from the fact that simply because the law said you were white, you got right to residence in a particular area, to schooling in a particular place, to a job in a particular unit. All of these had nothing to do with your thinking, your politics, simply was a result of how the law defined you. So it should have addressed them and told them and shown them that they were beneficiaries, should have prepared them for a, a, a social project, that, that this transition is not going to be durable unless it is followed by social justice. And that social justice doesn't have to be violent if indeed society is able to put together a majority through a political process, an educational process. What I was saying last night mm -hmm. is that this responsibility lies with the intelligentsia in South Africa, and the intelligentsia in South Africa has forsaken this responsibility. I was speaking at a great university, which I taught three years in the 90s at another great university, UCT, and I know that all these folks have, have, have very little interest in what's going on, on, on the ground. They want to be validated by universities in the West. They, they think they have this notion, just like the human rights people have this notion, that somehow the solution comes from out there. Mm. The solution is not to be to be to be extricated from experiences here, uh, you know. And and another group which is opposed to these people is is simply singing a lullaby of the historical greatness of, of Africa from ancient Egypt onwards, as as if Africa has existed. Uh, throughout history, as if Africa was a divine creation of some sort, without looking at the history which has given us the present today. Uh, it's not the history of ancient Egypt that has given us the present today. It's a different kind of history that has given us this present today. And we have to study that sure. history, Prof. and we have to address the present. Please allow me to just squeeze in the uh, last couple of calls here. Uh, let me start with Motala in Durban. Motala, good morning. Very briefly Hello, for me. Good morning. Hi. The real reason for conflict all over the world, and particularly in Africa, is who controls the natural resources and who uses them. In South Africa, we found that the colonial people deliberately took away our natural resources 
and they still control and own them, and that impoverished our people. Now, the moment the people fight for that, in fact, Cordesa agreed that everything should remain as it is with regards to natural resources. Okay. This is the key issue. The, in fact, Cordesa, in fact, they went so far to forget and forgive. The, those who took everything away from us. Okay. They were deliberately misled, and this is the key issue. And as long as our natural resources remain in the hands of those colonials who took them away by force from our people, we will continue to have conflict and disagreement, and that is happening all over the world. Thank, Thank you, Mutala. Let me, let me go to Mark and Babatan. Hello, Mark. Kalan and the Professor, good morning. All right, welcome. Well, then, I just want to check with the professor that won't he agree if I say uh, most of these ju uh, criminal justice or judicial challenges that Africa faces, based on his lecture, is that you find that most of, of them are based on the Roman uh, judge, uh, legal system, which has not since thereafter been uh, changed in Africa in particular. Instead, Africa, when reaching Africa, the independence you are forced or you are coerced into signing the so-called international pact, which excludes the African, uh, African point of view of the world and how they should relate, even right down to the way they govern themselves in okay. their political African system or African uh, uh, judicial or legal system. All right, Mark in Babaton, thank you. Ivo in Dublin, you my last caller very briefly. Good morning. Good morning. Hi, Ivo. Good morning, Tolani. Tolani, I just feel that politicians uh, play on people's emotions, and that's how they keep people following them. Because, in, for instance, in 1959, when I was a little naughty and nine years old, mm -hmm. okay, Dr. Fawood came onto the radio and said that separation was the only answer in this country. And we, as children, didn't even understand it when, when they said we weren't allowed to play with our black brothers anymore. And that's the type of emotion that people play. Like, for instance, um, uh, like, um, what's his name, the President Zuma, mm -hmm. when he said, you know, don't take on other, other races, uh, um, like walk the dog and all that type of place thing. You know what I'm saying, kind of mean? That it's politicians play on the emotions. Like, it's, for instance, when, when we had to go to army, and if you didn't want to go to army, they say, right, you've got a 10-year sentence if yeah. you don't go to army. Okay. It's, it's playing on people's emotions. All right, and that's the only way they keep people... Following these people. Okay, Ivo. I, I think I, we get the point. Thank you. The professor will respond. Prof, let me just take one or two SMSs as well, just to wrap up. Um, there is uh, somebody who says, excellent points being made by your professor. A change in approach is what is needed to solve these issues. Um, but another one says, what the professor is proposing is what has been used around the continent, unity government, transition government, etc. It just buys time. It doesn't solve anything at all. Uh, also, John says, what about leaders who order their supporters to con commit violence. Uh, please ask Professor Mamdani about the South American experience, Argentina and Chile, and the influence of the Catholic Church, uh, the confessional and uh, repentance. That's KC. Just, th those brief ones, if you can just give me an over overview, Professor, as we wrap up. I've got uh, less than a minute. Well, look, uh, it's true that unity governments pacts they only buy time. That time is crucial and valuable. If you're locked in a, in a, in a life and death struggle, and, 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 and you can buy time to, to sit around a negotiating table, uh, that's a huge step forward. Um, and, and that's exactly what Codesa did. It has bought us time.
it has not solved all problems. Now, the time we have, we don't know when the time will come to an end, but, but we have to use that time to address the question of the social consequences of apartheid. That's one point. Second point is this. Look, all I'm saying is that our big question right now is putting together, creating a political order which is inclusive, where everybody feels whatever differences they may otherwise have, but everybody is included in the political process. Because if you're not included in the political process, then recourse to arms or complete a, 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 a defeat and surrender. There, there's no other other way yeah. outside of that. So, so the political question is the big question that confronts us. Professor, I've really got to thank you very much for the hour. I've got to thank you for spending time with us this morning. It's been a pleasure. Very much, and I thank you, listeners. Thanks, so. Th- Thank you very much. Professor Mahmoud Mamdani, uh, he presented the Mistral lecture last night. He is the executive director of Makerere Institute of Social Research, um, and we thank him very much for his time this morning. Thank you very much for listening to the program. I thank you for the SMSs, emails, calls, etc. Uh, let's do this again tomorrow, 6 to 9 here on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Also, would like to thank the team who put it all together. Uh, our producers, Misha Shanzale, Tracy Bumgard, Sbongilin Tlapo, Wisana Makubele, Sina producer, Lungi Technical producer Mark Puella, Forum at 8 producers Jake Mukoma and Mande Samzelu, Chief Producer Botsilokoto, Executive Producers Obrese Chie and Bosichana. Time now for your latest news here on SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Chief.